All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday worship. My name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here. Again, just a shout out to our babysitting ministry that's starting. If you don't know, if you're a parent, you don't know. Um, we understand at this church that when you're a parent with young children, it's hard to make space for each other. Marriages can be neglected, and it's really hard to even go out and watch a movie or a date night. So the main reason why we're doing babysitting ministry at our church is we want our church to have healthy marriages. We want there to be space for parents to spend time together in their marriage. And it was really encouraging when I reached out to a bunch of young adults. We had like over 30 people volunteers saying we're more than willing to like babysit and help parents have space together to meet. And so hope if you're a parent here and you're a member that you could please sign up for that. would love to serve you in that way. And there will be an orientation of what it looks like uh, in, de- in more detail about next month or so. But sign up for now. And for everyone else who's here, welcome to our Sunday service. We are going through a sermon series and uh, we're in week two of today. And today we're actually looking at a letter from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. And so if you guys could turn to Romans chapter 12 in your Bibles, if you have your program sheet, be in the back there. And at our church, we believe when we read the scriptures that we have a God who's alive and he is speaking to us. So can we all rise together? And we're going to read this passage, starting Romans chapter 12, verse 9. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Rome. In verse 9, Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. And Lord, I pray as we gather together on this Sunday that your spirit would stir in our hearts and that you would speak and that we could hear your voice at this time. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. There's this book that I've been reading, a short book called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. He is a New York Times columnist and journalist. And the book, it begins with a very interesting phenomenon that he observed in U.S. history that I feel like a lot of us do not know. Back in the 18th century, there were two groups living in North American land. There were the indigenous Native Americans who were you know, living here. This was their land. And then there were the white European colonists who were slowly making their way here, establishing themselves, setting up campsites, homes, small cities, and they're living side by side together. And this might you know, kind of spark for us eighth grade history of indigenous tribes, white colonists living together. And for the most part in the 18th century, especially on the East Coast, they were living peacefully alongside with one another. But as you might recall, there might be times where there's feuds, there's wars, and sometimes there'd be even battles where they would raid the other side, they would capture the other side and hold them hostage. And what was interesting, though, was that whenever the indigenous Native American tribes, whenever some of their people were captured and taken over by the white colonists, other indigenous tribe members would ransom them and ask for them back. And then they would run back to the indigenous tribes and they would weep, running back to their families, running back to their tribe, glad to be reunited. But then sometimes there'd be white colonists who were kidnapped by the indigenous tribes and they would be there and then the white colonists families would come going, we'll ransom them, please come back. And the white colonists who were captured, they did not want to go back. They would stay and live with the indigenous tribes. 
In fact, what was really interesting is that many white colonists in the, in the 18th century, they actually voluntarily would go and leave their homes and join the indigenous Native Americans to live with them in the woods. But it was never the other way around. Nobody wanted to join the white colonists. What's going on here? Like, why did that happen? This was an interesting phenomenon because weren't the white colonists the superior culture? Didn't they have superior technology? They had more comfortable living. The indigenous Native Americans, they're living in the woods. It was really poor and impoverished with them. Why would the indigenous tribes want to stay together? Why would the white colonists want to go there, but never the other way around? And the author, he observes this is the reason why. He quotes this on the screen. America was a booming industrial society glued together by a body of law. But the Native Americans, they lived communally in mobile encampments. It was the intensely communal nature of a Native American tribe held in appeal that the material benefits of Western civilization couldn't necessarily compete with. In other words, there was something about the indigenous tribes, the communal nature of them, that just really resonated with the white colonists when they got to experience that. And the reason why that happens is because when you live in a poor society, you have to share your resources. So back then, especially, if you wanted to wash your clothes, you would go in the river, where a bunch of other people would be at the river, washing their clothes together. If you wanted to cook something, you had to go to a fire pit, and you're cooking together as a community. That was just life together back then. Versus in the white colonist tribes, they were more affluent, they had better technology, so you don't need other people. If you want to cook, a food, cook food, you just you have your own stove. If you want to wash your clothes, you have your own washer. And even though that's so normal for us today, what Junger proposes is that it does something to us. It does something to human beings when we are isolated like that, when we're individualized, when the only people we see is our nuclear family, our spouse, and our kids, if even that. And what's really interesting is he notes that this is something even in modern terms, we see the result where a city or a place, a society that becomes more affluent, that becomes more urbanized, what ends up happening is that rates of depression and suicide does not go down, it actually goes up. For some reason, the richer a country is, the more depressed it tends to be. In fact, there's one study that shows that uh, Mexicans who were born in the U.S., they will always turn out most likely wealthier being born in the U.S., but those who were born in Mexico, they are far happier, less depressed, because in, the, in those impoverished countries, one, they are less affluent for some reason, you just do life together. You share resources together. And we were meant to be human beings who shared life, who practices community, not just with three or four, but all of life, we're just with people. And this is one of the main reasons why the early church back in the first century, when it first started, they actually functioned like an indigenous tribe to the Roman Empire. In the first century, the early church, there was no, nothing materially appealing about them. They had no clout. They were impoverished. They were ostracized. They were persecuted. And yet we read through history, we read through the Bible that thousands of people regularly joined this impoverished group in the first century. Why? It's because their community the way they shared life, the way the people in the church loved each other just caught the attention of the surrounding people who observed them. One author and pastor, he says it like this, quotes on the screen, the most persuasive argument for the Christian faith, it's the Christian community. The majority of conversions throughout church history, they have come not through an argumentation, but through belonging to a meaningful community before belief is ever even required. 
I know for many of you, if you grew up in the church, if you are a Christian, a lot of us, we think the order tends to be, oh, I heard the gospel and I heard who Jesus was and I became a Christian. But if you actually look at your testimony and history, a lot of it's because you were drawn to a community first. There was something about the community that was really appealing to you. And that made you be interested in who this community was and what they were about. And today, if we actually observe, people need meaningful community more than ever because we live in a time today that's more affluent more than ever in in history. We are the the richest country in the world of all time. And ironically, also the loneliest. We are the loneliest people. All of us here, we drive to work alone. We all sit in our office alone. We all eat our lunches alone. We all drive home alone. We all watch TV alone. And that's if you even go to the office. I know a lot of you work remotely. You're just alone all the time. And yet for you, does the church offer you a meaningful community? Are people drawn to the church community today? And if we're actually honest with ourselves, a lot of people in the church, they're just as lonely. We are just as lonely today. And it could be because the church, it lost what it means to practice community. We lost what community really is supposed to look like as a church. And so that's why starting last week, we started a new sermon series about community where we want to learn how Jesus practiced community so that we as followers of Jesus can learn how we should practice community. Because for a lot of us here, if we're really honest with ourselves, we have friends. We have like three or four friends and you share a lot of chemistry with them. But how often do you see those friends? In reality, what we actually, friends are nice, but what we actually need is community, people we share life with, people who we know us day by day, And a lot of us, we're not good at that. We're good at making friends. We're not good at really having a community in our life. But Jesus in his life, he lived in community. He shared life with community. He had all types of different people in his life and they weren't just hanging out together, but it's through this community that Jesus sees transformation happening because in community, we become like Jesus. We learn to love And that's the whole purpose of the church, to gather together. The reason why we don't just do a podcast, we don't just do screens, the reason why we share life is so we can become a people of love. And this is not easy. This is really challenging. In fact, most communities, when you join it, it's always going to start out, like we said last week, a pseudo community, a community that's really polite, that shows our best selves about each other, but not really knowing each other. And oftentimes, that's how church communities stay. And so the question that we're going to be asking today is, well, what does a community growing in love looks like? We teased it last week, but what do you you actually do as a church community that makes it like a real Jesus-following community? And today what we're going to look at is the passage in Romans, chapter 12. Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, he is a follower of Jesus. He's writing to a community in Rome, and he tells them, this is what your community should look like. This is what you should be doing. There's a bunch of different commands in this passage. Uh, Almost look at it like it's Paul's version of of tweeting. He's like just giving all these tweets going, you want to see community? A thread. And he just lists all these little sayings describing what a community should look like amongst God's people. And when we look at this all together, we're going to learn three things from what Paul is saying from these paragraphs. Number one is the nature of community. Meaning what type, what, like what are we supposed to, how do we do understand this group of people together in this room? Second, the healing through community, why you need community and why it heals. And then lastly, the practice of our community. How does our church practice community? So the nature, the healing, the practice. First, the nature of community. 
if we were to be really honest with ourselves, if we were to be like really honest, how do you view people in this church? How do you relate to people in this room? What role does the people in this room have in your life? If we're very honest, it's one of two answers. For some of us, the church, all of our life, it functions like a club. It's a place where we connect with people, we see them once a week, we do this singing thing, we do this preaching thing, but we don't overly share, nor do we overly inquire. If you meet someone, they're like, I'm dating somebody, oh, really? And you find out they're like 20 years older than that person, you're just like, oh, cool, and you just walk away. You don't inquire, you don't ask questions, you don't ask how did you guys meet, you just go, oh, that's nice. We're all polite to each other, and we only think about this group when we're together. We're thinking about it now, but come Monday, come Tuesday, you don't think about the people here. And the reason why is because that's a club mentality. You're only with the people to do common things together like this, but you're not going to invest in the people because it's a club. That's how some of us view people in the church. That might be some of you here. I think that a lot of, if a lot of you who grew up in the church, you're, you don't think club mentality, but you view the church like a friend group or a potential friend group. You're here to meet people. It's like online dating. Like you want to find people who you connect with and you're going to keep swiping. And what happens is you'll give it time. You'll keep meeting. You'll do the community group thing. You'll come on Sundays and talk to people. But after a while, you keep swiping and you don't find anybody. What are you going to do? You're going to leave Hinge and you're going to go on Coffee Meets Bagel and see is anyone there. And that's what we do in the church. You're looking for people. You're looking for friends. And after a while, if you don't connect with anybody, you get a little bit disappointed. On to the next church. Because for us, for all of us who have this mentality, the church is a place where, yeah, you worship, yeah, you pray, but you want to find friends. You're looking for your friend group. And that's how a lot of us come to church, if we're honest. But notice when Paul begins his Twitter thread in Romans 12, Notice how he tells us what we got to do as a church community and what we have to prioritize in our mind. He tells us, hey, when you practice community as a church, you have to love each other a certain way. And it's a very interesting phrase he says. Look at verse 9, what he says. He says, let there be love without hypocrisy. He doesn't just say love each other. He goes, hey, this community, love without hypocrisy. That word hypocrisy in the Greek, it's translated in different ways. It means, it's on the screen there, it can mean genuine. It can mean sincere. It can mean real. I like the real phrase, which is be real with your love. Let it be like a real love that's appropriate for this moment. Uh, the reason why Paul uses this interesting word is that in the first century, when they had plays, what happens is the actors, they would be up here, and the play stadium would be huge, and they didn't have screens back then, so you can't really see the actors' faces. And so in order to display their emotions and their, the nuances of their face, they would actually wear a mask, and that would be like a happy mask, and it shows they're happy or shows that they're sad. You have no idea what the actor's really feeling. You just see the mask that's there. And that's the Greek word, the, the, the hypocrisy word. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, don't do that. In this community, when you come together, let your love not be a mask, let it not be fake, let it be real. Let it match the reality of what's going on with you. Now, what, type, what is the reality that's happening in the church? What type of love is supposed to be seen here? And Paul tells us in the next sentence, it's a family love. Look at what he says in verse 10. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. You know how you are to love here? Like family. It's an interesting phrase that he uses, the word love deeply. It's actually the Greek word storge, which is another translation of love. In the English, if you want to say you love somebody, we have one word for that, love. That's the only word we have for love in the English, in the English language. 
But in Greek, there are four different languages or four different words people use for love. There's eros, which is like a romantic type of love. There's philia, which is like a friendship love. There's agape, which is a sacrificial love. And then there's this interesting Greek word called storge, which is like this affectionate love, this family love. That's the word Paul is using here. When a mom is holding her baby, she doesn't look at her baby going, should I love you? Are you good looking? Are you cute enough? She just loves the baby. And the baby, when she's looking at the mom, the baby isn't thinking, who are you? Should I trust you? No, the baby just loves the mom. That's storge love. Or if you have siblings, you may look at your sibling going, man, I don't like you. You're annoying. But you love them. You can't help but love your siblings most of the times, right? And there's no reason you would choose them. They just are your siblings. That's the storge love that Paul's talking about. And Paul's saying as a church community, that is the type of love you need to have with each other. For this to work, for this to be a community that transforms you into a person of love, there has to be not an eros love, not a philia love. Agape is an interesting one, which we'll talk about later. But storge is the baseline, where we love each other like family. And that's why when Paul says that, that's the only way you can make sense of the rest of this paragraph of how we relate to each other. Notice when Paul describes this community with his series of tweets, it's a type of community that's far deeper than any club. Look what it says in verse nine. Paul says, again, uh, do not love without, with hypocrisy, but detest evil and cling to what is good. Paul is saying when you gather together, don't just affirm the good, but when you see bad in this group, like, you need to point it out. We can't do this whole, like, that's nice, but like, no, like, what's going on there? Imagine you signed up for a pottery class and you sit down and you're doing pottery and you're just doing the whole clay thing, making a pot. And all of a sudden this lady's next to you and she just does small talk. And what, what makes you join this pottery class? And you're all doing it. And imagine you're wearing an engagement ring because you just got engaged. And she's like, oh, you're engaged? And you go, oh yeah, I just got engaged recently. And imagine she goes, oh my gosh, aren't you too young to be engaged? Don't, do you know your, your fiance that well? Oh my gosh, I would, that's a really bad choice. I don't think you should do that what would you say? If I was in that position, I'd be like, excuse me, let's just make our pots, please. And I just kind of keep going. Just keep going. Why? Because who is this lady think she is? We're just making pots. And that's all. So it's none of her business to ask me about my dating life. Versus if I happen to be with my daughter and I notice she's wearing a ring, I'd be like, oh, what's that? And she's like, I just got engaged. I guess we're making pots too. You know, I just got engaged. And I'm just, I'll be like, who are you engaged to? You are way too young. And she's like pushing back going, this is none of your business. I'd be, this is my business because I'm your dad and we just go at it. Why? Because we're family. That's what family does. Who you date is my business if you're my family. How you spend your finances, that's my business. How you spend your time, that's my business. In any other relational setting, inappropriate. But in a family, we actually inquire about that. And Paul's saying, you know, in the church, yeah, that's a family. If you don't want people up in your business, the church is the wrong place to go. It's meant to be a place where your whole life is open to each other. We are far deeper than a club. But also notice that Paul says it's also deeper than a friendship. It's different than a friendship. In verse 16, look what Paul says. In this community, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Usually when we are part of a friend group, if you go to a wedding, you look for people you get along with the people you have the most chemistry with. But in the church, what Paul says, no, no, people you don't have chemistry with, like zero, go find them. Spend time with them. Because this isn't a friend group. My son Judah, 
He hangs out with all these neighborhood kids all the time. There's Teddy and there's Maverick and there's Dean and they hang out like every day. And without fail, what happens is Judah would come and he would tell me that he got into a fight with one of them or one is being mean and he doesn't want to play with them. And every time Judah says that, I always tell him, don't play with them then. It's all good. Find other friends. Don't worry about it because you don't have to play with them. But when he gets in a fight with his sister, oh, I hate my sister. I don't want to play with her. I'm like, that's your sister. You play with her. Don't you ever ignore her. That's your sister. Why? Because that's family. Doesn't matter how long, how much chemistry you have. Doesn't matter how much time you spend, like how much time you don't want to spend with them. You could be in the biggest feud with your sibling, but you will show up for Thanksgiving dinner. You will show up to eat together in family functions. Because in a family, it's not about chemistry. It's more than a friend group. You're siblings. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the only way you'll understand the community in the church. And notice also, lastly, Paul, when he describes this church community, they relate to each other in a way that, man, only, it's only appropriate in a family. Look what it says in verse 13. Paul says, share with the saints in their needs, practice hospitality. When someone's in need in this community, well, you should share with them. You should, get, you should help them with your the, with the resources. If it's a stranger who's in need and you help them, that's called charity. If it's a friend and they're in need, that's a favor. They better like, be a good friend to you. But if it's your family who's in need, that's not charity. That's not a favor. That's your responsibility. Because it's your family. We're the people who are there to care for them and meet their needs. And Paul says, that's the church. That's the way the church is supposed to be. You will never understand or experience the community in the church unless you see it in this framework of a family. Why? Why are we supposed to practice family this way as a church? Why storge love? Why is that the love that Paul emphasizes here? And the reason why is because this type of love grows you. There's a unique glory that this type of love is be able to just reveal when you practice love like this with one another. If you've been at our church for a little bit of time, you guys know I love Star Wars. Like, I love Star Wars. Like, some of you guys think I use it as illustrations too often. I don't think I use it enough. Like, I love Star Wars. Like, there's like this geekiness of Star Wars I just love. But here's one thing that people don't know. I did not love Star Wars because I grew up on it. Even though it was like, it was a 70s, 80s film. It came out before I was born. And so what happened was when I got older of age to watch Star Wars, I kind of missed the train. And so whenever I saw people loving Star Wars, I'm like, dude, I have zero interest in this franchise. I did not watch any movies as a kid, did not watch it in middle school, did not watch it in high school. It wasn't until college that I got exposed to Star Wars again because my roommates in college, they happened to love Star Wars. And when I was in college, that happened to be when the prequels came out in theaters. And so all they talked about was Star Wars and the prequels are coming out. And I had zero interest in watching it because I'm like, Star Wars is nerdy. I'm not into that sci-fi stuff. But I remember before the prequels came out, that you got to watch it, Tom. Let's watch it together. Just watch the originals. I watched the originals and I saw the first one, the second one, the third one. I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Like Star Wars is awesome. This whole universe got introduced to me and now like I am full-blown there, full-blown Star Wars fan. And what's really interesting about that is I would have never on my own have chosen to love Star Wars. It took living with people and them forcing me to watch Star Wars that almost expanded my palate to enjoy this movie franchise. And this is what Storygate Love does for you. Not for movies, but for people. 
The type of people that you are spending time with right now, it's the people you choose. The people who are suited to your palate. The people who you like and you feel like you have chemistry with. And again, that's all good. But what Storge Love does is it widens you to a unique glory. It widens you to a type of people that you perhaps would have never yourself have chosen to spend time with and enjoy. And yet God is introducing that to grow you in love. C.S. Lewis in his classic book, The Four Loves, he says it like this is on the screen, quote, the especial glory of affection or storge love is that it can unite those who most emphatically, even comically or not, people who, if they had not found themselves put down by the fate in the same household or community, would have had nothing to do with each other. But we are getting beyond our own idiosyncrasies, beyond what suits our own palate. That's why a lot of people who you love deeply right now, you didn't choose them if you actually think about it. It was your roommate who got assigned to you. It was your sibling who your parents just gave to you. It was people you happened to run into and you were forced out in a car ride or a retreat with them. There's a unique glory that happens where your love gets expanded when you're just with people. And that's what the church is supposed to be. This expansion of your love where you are far, there's far more people who are lovable than you realize out there. And the church is meant to be that place where you practice that. You grow out of your self-absorption. You grow out of your ego. And you see that there's a wider community that there is to love. And so, before we move on, let me ask a quick question. Do you see the church as a family? Are you willing to practice love in this way? Some of you, if you're really honest, the church is a club. You come here once in a while, maybe at most a Sunday, you, you don't really want to talk to people. And if, if that's you and it's because you're new, no problem. It takes time to feel safe and comfortable in any communal space. Totally get it if you're new, if you're visiting. Take your time. But for some of you, this is your whole life. Your whole life, the church is, oh, it's like this club that I go to. I don't really, yeah, I don't really think about people here. They're not really a priority on my life. And if that's you, just realize that's totally fine, except if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. If you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but that's the way you practice community, just know you're not really following Jesus. Following Jesus for, for followers of Jesus is you follow him together. This is part of the process. It's seeing the church as a family and relating to them in this way. Some of you, you're trying hard where you're like, you know, I don't want it to be a club. I'm trying hard, but it's just really hard. I get it totally get it. There's probably something deeper going on, which I'll talk about in the next point. But just know if you're in this space, you're kind of missing out on a type of community that God wants you to have. But again, others of you, it's not the club thing. For you, the biggest thing is the community. It's a potential friend group. And that's why it's hard because you're not finding chemistry with a lot of people. And if you're in that group where you're looking at this group as a potential friend group, just know I have nothing but empathy for you. You know why? I don't blame you. Our church, when you look at the demographic, I hope you guys know it's kind of weird, the demographic of our church. This does not match the demographic of local churches for the past like 2,000 years. Like this is like an outlier. Like when you walk in here, everybody in this room is between the ages 20 to 40. You know how unusual that is? Everybody in this room, we're all in similar life stages. You all went to some UC local college around here or Cal State, somewhere. We all know your colleges. We all look alike, kind of. We all have kind of brown eyes, black, darker hair. A lot of us, we look similar. We're all like parents, or we're about to become parents, or we're single, we're working remotely. This is an interesting demographic that does not match 90% of the world of churches. 
And again, we are all habituated to think, oh yeah, a church like this, potential friends. This is friendship material. And we were habituated to think that way because you think about youth group, everybody's your age, all friends. College ministries, they're all your age, all friends. So when you come to a setting like this, this is a great strength. It's comfortable, a lot of potential friends. And so you can't help but look at this like a friend group. But imagine you went to a more normal church. You know what you would see in a normal church, a demographic? Imagine it's size 100. You would see a group of little kids. You would see a group of elementary kids. You would see a group of teenagers. You would see a couple of 20-year-olds, a couple of 30-year-olds, a lot of 40-year-olds, a lot of 50-year-olds, a group of 60-year-olds, a lot of 70-year-olds, a lot of grandparents, and a lot of children all in the same room. And if you saw that, I think a lot of us would not think, these could be my friends. This is my friend group. You know what that picture looks like? It's a family. It's a family. And a family is not there to entertain you. The family is there to nurture you. The family is not there to keep you company so you don't feel just lonely. The family is there to encourage, to correct you, to grow you. It's really nice to have friends, and I'll talk about that more next week, but you need a family. You need a family to grow. And a lot of us here, if you only see the church as your potential friend group, you will be missing out on what the church is supposed to be. It is deeper than friends. It's a family, the family of God. And so that's nature. That's so important to know. The church is a family. And we need that because through the church, through the community, we experience the second point, healing. We need healing. What does it look like for this church family to practice family together, to practice community? For some of us here, depends on your background, you might think, okay, that's, you're saying this is a family, that's hard to imagine because your family is awesome. Your family's up here. So to say the church is up here, I don't think so. That would just never happen. Versus for others of you, you're like, please no, because you don't like your family. Your family was rough. In other words, all of us, we bring our own idea of family into the community. And I think that's what kind of messes us up. The way you relate to people, it's coming from somewhere. And it's kind of causing a little bit of relational chaos, I think, for a lot of us. Um, some people call this family of origin. Some people call this just relational dysfunctionality. I like the term that I use a lot, which is this is actually what psychologists call attachment theory. If you know what attachment theory is, it's pretty much the theory that human beings, your brains are wired to attach to people. Uh, you were built to attach to people, and it happens right when you are born. For example, uh, mothers, when you're nursing your child, you'll notice the baby is not just getting nursed, but the baby's looking at you. Moms get freaked out, like, why are you staring at me? They're just like staring at their mom. And the reason why is because they're trying to connect with you. You're just born to attach to whatever you see, whoever you see. And here's the thing, how you attach to somebody or how you not attach to somebody as a child, it shapes the way you attach or not attach to people as adults. John Balby, he's a psychologist in the 1980s. He was the first one to notice this pattern where your adult relationships it's actually based upon the pattern of your relationship with your parents. So you're not, it's not just you're unique and you know, that's just how you're wired. Like, no, the way your parents related to you, that's what causes you to relate with the people as an adult. And he actually theorizes that there are, and this is very general, four different attachment styles that we experience as children, and it kind of translates when we become parents or adults ourselves. Here's the first attachment style. Number one is this, avoidance. Some of us, you have an avoidant attachment style, and the reason why is because you grew up in a household 
where your parents were physically not there, so they might have been working, so you just come home to a house that's by yourself. Or it might be because your parents were emotionally distant. So they were, you know, hey, dad, I love you. And they just don't respond to you. It could be a really strict household. But whatever it is, it's really distant. And so what happens is when, that, when that's the attachment style that you experience as a child, what happens is when you become an adult and you sense someone trying to get close to you, a romantic partner, friends, church, you withdraw. That freaks you out. Because you grew up learning that, oh, you can't rely on people. People are not there for you. So you will naturally withdraw and keep people at arm's length. And I'm describing about half of us here, right? That's us, because we grew up that way. We, you can't trust people. And that's how we attach as adults. For some of us, it's not avoidance, but here's the second one. For some of us, it's anxious. It's an anxious attachment style. This is when your parents might be present, but they're not reliable. Like you want something, but they don't know how to provide for you. They don't know how to love you. They're, they're, you want them because they're there, but they're not really giving you the, the love tank that you're really craving. And so what happens is when you become an adult, you really want that love tank filled. You want intimacy. So you want to hang out with people. You want to initiate with people. You want to love them so they can love you. You smother people. You overwhelm people. You're clingy with people. And you don't even realize it. Because you have this strong sense where you want to have people fill you up because you don't have a strong sense about yourself. And you're worried they're going to abandon you, that they're going to do just like your parents did. That's your attachment style. You're anxious. For some of you, it's a third one, which is scattered. Scattered attachment style is your parents are a mixture of the first two, which is they're there and not there. Sometimes they're there and they provide for needs, sometimes not. Sometimes they're close, sometimes they're distant. And so what happens is when you're an adult, you don't trust people, you don't trust yourself. So there's like this weird back and forth where you get really close to people and all of a sudden you just ghost them, like randomly. And they don't, they're so confused, like, what's going on? I thought we were homies. And you're like, I don't know. And it's because you're desperately seeking love because you're really hungry for that. And yet you can't help but not trust people too. So you alternate between independence and interdependence. It's like this weird back and forth. And then here's the fourth attachment style, the last one, secure. This is when, when you grew up, you were generally well-loved. You were generally cared for by your parents. They weren't perfect, but there's generally a sense of they provided for your needs, they loved you, they're emotionally present and physically present for you. So that when you become an adult, you now can generally trust people and you trust yourself because you grew up in the context of security. And this, all the parents freak out when we read this. They're like, oh my gosh, am I doing this? Am I doing this for my kids? But this is where we all come from. And few adults practice healthy attachments with each other as adults because we grew up experiencing unhealthy attachments. And here's the thing. The problem with this is you can't fix this part of your life by yourself. There is no pill that you could take that will fix this for you. There is no book that you could read to go, oh, I get it now. That doesn't fix it. There's no sermon that you could listen to and now you will walk away transformed. What people usually do when they notice this about themselves is they'll go to therapy. And again, therapy is very helpful. It helps you become aware of like your, who you are and how you grew up. But therapy, all it does is bring self-awareness self to you. It does not fix you. Because the problem with this is an issue of trust. You don't trust people. That's the biggest problem. You don't trust yourself. And so the only way to heal from unhealthy relationships is through healthy relationships. The only way you could heal from an unhealthy attachment pattern is through healthy ones. And that's why as Christians, we believe that it all begins with Jesus in the gospel. 
In Jesus, we find someone who is the most secure, who loves us, who's there for us, who even in the midst of our withdrawing, in the midst of us going back and forth, Jesus is a stable presence for us, forgiving us of our sins. And through Jesus, he calls you a son and daughter and God becomes your heavenly father. And as God responds to us as a heavenly father, he forgives us, but he also reparents us through the community. Through Jesus, we experience forgiveness. Through his community, we experience healing. And that's what the church is for. It's to heal us. It's to be in relationships that restore us because this is a broken world. And we need loving relationships to repattern the way we relate to other people. And that's why Paul, he describes a couple ways of how this community is supposed to do this. For example, Paul says, one, this is a community that's meant to honor each other, he says. Look what it says in verse 10. Paul tells the community, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. This word honor, it's a Greek word that's translated often as value or price. It's a financial word. It's where we get the word honorarium, where you look at somebody, you don't give them a set wage. It's based upon who they are. And Paul is saying this community, honor each other, which is kind of, again, a strange word. Like, that'd be really weird. I'm like, hey guys, let's honor each other right now. Let's go. Like, what would we do? It's kind of awkward. It'd be awkward. Like, hey, can I honor you? It's like, whoa, what's going on here? You know why it's so awkward? It's not wrong. It's not like we disagree with that. It's awkward because awkward things are things we're not used to. You're not used to people honoring you. We grew up in a society and a culture where it's normal, like put down, sarcasm, jokes. You are more likely to get made fun of than to be honored. If you grew up in a household like me, it's not usually a household of just a lot of affirmation. You're the best, Tom. Like that's not what they do. Our parents, it's a lot of like, hey, why didn't you get that A? Hey, why didn't you get into that university? It's a lot of put downs. It's a lot of just like, hey, what's wrong with you? And that's why a lot of us have our baggage. But Paul, what he tells us is, imagine a community where when you gather together in this context where everyone puts you down, it's, yeah, it's, it's filled with sarcasm and brokenness. But in this community, we honor each other. We make it a point to honor each other. Imagine you're part of a community where you meet together and a small group of people, they will tell you in the midst of all the fun and joking you might be having, like, hey, you know, I noticed you did this. That was actually really cool. Or, hey, you look good in that. I, I saw my son today, he wore a shirt. I'm like, hey, Judah, like, that shirt looks really good on you. He had like this weird smile. He's like, oh, no, stop. And he's just kind of smiling. And it's like, oh yeah, like I just honored him in that moment. Or sometimes I tell people when I look at them, they're these guys and they just lost a lot of weight and they're work- I'm like, dude, did you been working out? And they're like, stop, nah, nah. And they just flex and stuff, nah, nah. I'm just like, dude, I made your day, man. I just made your day right now. Because I noticed, and I'm not making it up, like I noticed they worked out. Like, why, why is that? It's because we're, we like that, we want that. It's so awkward, we just don't receive it. The idea that, hey, I see God working in you. Like, imagine how life-giving a community like that, if you had that in your life, would be. And a lot of us, we don't have that. Or imagine you're in conflict with somebody. And usually when you're in conflict, it's just fighting or you're withdrawing. But imagine if we honor each other, if you approach them going, hey, we have issues, we got to talk. But before we talk, let me tell you, I respect you. Like, I really respect you. That's why I'm even talking to you about this. So we got to talk about that thing. But I really want to hear you because I really respect you. How would that relationship, like, what would happen in that conversation? That's a community of honor. In a community filled with sarcasm and put downs and that's the culture, what happens is that becomes a community of fear. Your amygdala in your brain, when it feels fearful, it causes you to withdraw. And that's when you become that pseudo community where you don't really share deep stuff because you have no idea how people are going to respond. 
versus a community filled with honor that you're affirming that that's the culture of what the group is doing, that's when your brain eases because it feels safe. That's when the guards are down. That's when you are calm. That's when you become open to sharing because it's a safe space for you. And that's what Paul is imagining for the community in the church. A community where it is normal, not awkward, to affirm, to encourage, to honor each other. Next, Paul says, this is a community that doesn't just honor, but if you want this community to transform you, let it be one that opens their life to each other. Verse 15, look what Paul says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Let this community, when someone's rejoicing, other people are rejoicing. When someone's weeping, others are weeping. This implies two things. One is we have to be open with our lives. This is a community where we're, we're really, our real selves are being shown. You guys know that app, uh, Be Real? You guys ever hear that app before? Hey, all, the, all you parents, there's an app called Be Real. It's a funny app. It's meant to be like the anti-Instagram, where Instagram, you, know, you show your best self and you filter and you go, look how awesome I am. But Be Real, what it is, is it's meant to be an app where once a day, you take a picture wherever you're at and it's just to your close friends and it's like, oh, your hair is like, you know, messed up and there's no filter, but you're being real. And you're saying, this is who I really am. That's the app. And it's almost like this, again, antidote to this Instagram culture that we're in. What Paul's is saying is everywhere else in the world, you are your IG self. You are your filtered self. But in the church community, if you want to experience community, be real. That's the only way it's going to work. That's the only way you'll get the healing that you need. So we have to be open about our lives in this community, but also we have to care about people when they open their life. Like that's something that's needed as well. Brian Reagan, he's a comedian. He, he tells a funny story. He says, hey, if you ever have two wisdom teeth pulled out, never tell that story to anybody. You know why? You'll never be able to finish. Because you say, the moment you say, hey, I've had two wisdom teeth taken out, it was crazy. Someone is going to be like, dude, that was nothing. I had four wisdom teeth taken out. And your story's gone. <laughs> it's about that person. Oh, I went to this one place. It was so hard. That was nothing. I went to this other place. I, you, know, you ever try this one restaurant? Oh, no, I went to a better restaurant. Like, we just up each other that way. And the reason why Brian Reagan says we do that is because we have this disease called me monster, where it's all about me. We care about us, my life, what I'm doing, what I'm interested in. Pay attention to me. Look at my story. But if you want to rejoice with those who rejoice, we have to pay attention to them. If we want to weep with those who weep, we have to really care about that. And that's what Paul says this community is supposed to be. The one place where the me monster is gone. The one place where you get out of your selfishness, out of your self-absorption, out of your ego, because you do that everywhere else, even in marriage, even amongst your kids, so much that you won't realize how much is about you. But let the church be this practice where, wait, for this moment, for these few hours, let me pay attention to someone besides myself. And that's when you rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. And lastly, Paul tells us if this community to heal each other, we have to bear with each other, we have to endure with each other. In verse 11, look what Paul says. He tells his community, do not lack diligence and zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. If you saw this verse in isolation, you would think it's the zeal for God and passionate for the Lord, but it's in the middle of a community context. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, let this zeal be for the community. Don't let it go away. Lean upon the spirit to do this. Serve the Lord by serving this community. What this means is that you have to keep at it, be intentional, because it doesn't come naturally. It's actually hard. In the New Testament, there are 59 one another passages that you might have heard. They're like, you know, do this for one another, do this for one another. But if you actually look at those passages, do you see what they actually say, how they describe what we should do for each other? Look at some of these verses. 
It's on the slide, next slide. Galatians 5, Paul says, let's not provoke or envy each other. Come on, church, let's not do that. Look at the next slide, look what he says. Be patient, bear with one another in love. Please be patient with each other. Look at the next slide. Forgive grievances you may have against one another. It sounds like a parent talking to their children. But Paul's talking to the church because he knows that community is hard. It's really hard. It's really challenging. But stick at it, stay together, bear with each other, don't lose your zeal. And then something just kind of transpires in this community, something deep that you have never have chosen for yourself. Or the way I put it in a few weeks ago, this is the chart that you'll see. It's on the screen. All of us are naturally unintentional. Small talk, how's your fantasy league? Small talk, but try to be intentional. How are you really doing? Try to be real. And then do that over time. What happens is when a lot of us, if you are down there, it's just this superficial Instagram community. But the next slide. When you have a lot of intentionality over a long period of time, something happens to this community. Something changes and transforms the people here. And that's the vision that Paul has. And so that leads to the last point. And just give me like eight minutes for this. How do we practice this in our church? What does it look like for us? Well, this is why we gather on Sundays. Sundays is not just this club thing. We're like, yeah, I'll go every once in a while. Like you're really missing the point of what the community is. Uh, they say in, for families, the most important thing a family could do is eat dinner together. That's like if, you know, do, let the kids do what they want, but eat dinner together, share a meal, because that forges bonds. The most important thing a church could do together is gather on Sundays. These are not these random Sundays we just come together to see each other. It's forging something. This is why we gather. This is also why we do membership at our church. We want to know who our community is. Again, if you're a guest, no problem, but we do believe in something called membership where we really identify who's part of the family of God. But then one last thing that we do as a church is we do this thing called community groups where we practice weekly meeting together. And when we look at our community groups, for those of you who are new, uh, this might be, you know, you've heard about this, but how does it work? For those of you who are members and you're a part of this, some changes are happening. Uh, just to give a little bit of preview, this is where we live right now, everybody around this region. And our church, next slide, is right there, Buena Park. And these are the community groups we have, next slide. We have 20 community groups that meet everywhere. So you have no excuse, it's everywhere, it's everywhere. There's 20 different groups, about 10 to 12 people who are there. And I'm so encouraged that when we sign up for community groups, we have a, over 170 people sign up for community groups here. That's 95% of our church. So at the very least, people at this church, like, you know, do we wanna know God? We'll figure that out, but we want community. Like, that's really real, that's really clear. Like, this is a church that wants community. And it's so encouraging. And the fact that so many parents signed up for this when we had every excuse not to, it's awesome. Like what an opportunity that our church has. And so when we meet together as a community and it, what I love about it is you know, we, our community groups, we share a meal together because eating food, it bonds people. We discuss about the sermon because we want to talk about our Christian faith together. We share life together. Where, how are you doing? And we try to pray together. And our goal for these groups is we want it to be life-giving. We want it to be where... When you go to the community group, you might be really tired and like, oh, why am I going? But when you drive away, you go, thank God I went. Like that was really fulfilling. That's our hope. And for those of us here who are part of a community group, if I could just lay out a couple of expectations for us. First is if you're part of a community group here, your community group, it does not have to be your friend group. It does not have to be your friend group. That takes chemistry. And again, that's really rare. If it happens to be your friend group, awesome. But it does not have to be your friend group because friends and community, they are two different things and you need community. 
Another expectation is we actually hope for those who join community groups, there could be a little bit, there could be a commitment from our members. Uh, I think some of us were sometimes used to, I'll go when I want, I'll go once a month. And we really ask, please don't do that. Um, there's a couple commitments we ask for people who join our community groups. Commitment number one is this, attend weekly. Attend every week. Go there when, you're, when your family's meeting together. Please attend every week. That's gonna be what forges community. Another commitment is this, show up on time. For, be, be there on time as best as possible. I know if you're a parent, it's tricky, but try your best to respect people's time because they're all meeting at the same time. Third commitment is open your life. Be real, not Instagram, be real. Fourth commitment for us is worship on Sundays. Don't let this community group be your pseudo church, but this is meant to be community groups, a window into the church. And last commitment is serve the church and the city together. We hope we have opportunities where these community groups, they serve the church and they serve the city. Last expectation we hope for our church is we hope through these community groups, we could be deeper and more intentional. It's hard to do that post Sundays. And in fact, even when we in community groups this past few years, it's kind of hard. But we hope that someone be that guy, be that person when someone shares something that you affirm them that you inquire, that you ask questions, that you're mindful of the time, but we are not just a community that just goes, thank you for sharing and we move on. But no, we really wanna care. We really wanna open our life and let it be safe for each other. And this, for me personally, I know for a lot of us, when you hear this, you go, you know, the idea that we could be real and we could change life sounds awesome. But the hardest part about this, if you're like me, is to be cynical. It's like, that sounds nice, but I don't know, man. I've been sold this bit before from churches. Like, is this really possible? And let me just tell you from a cynical guy, uh, you may not get the full, full feast every single week you meet, but you'll get gl uh, glimmers. You'll get glimpses where something happens in a community that's committed this way. And it's just an interesting thing what community does to shape your life when you're just kind of going at it over time. Uh, let me just close with my, a quick story of my community group. This past year, when I met in my community group, it's probably one of my favorite community group years this past year. And the reason why is not because of chemistry. It's not because we all just naturally got along. I mentioned last week, dude, it's like the most random people in my group, all different life stages. But you know what made a big difference in this group? Everybody showed up. They were there like every week. Like it was, like, so the only way people didn't show up was like, dude, they're like got super sick. And we're like, dude, you still gotta come, man. And we just like, that was that mentality. And they would still like sometimes come. But for the most part, it was like, everyone was there every week. And through that journey, we just saw people's careers go up and down and we journeyed with them. We saw them lose their jobs, gain their jobs. We saw friendship issues, people fighting and people not fighting. We saw engagements, we saw marriages, we saw marriage struggles. We saw family hardships. We affirmed each other. And looking back, I'm like, there was something about that that was really beautiful, that was really filling. And so it's very possible the power of spirit to experience community in this way. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, I just really want to invite us to consider this practice of community, that this is not something that's optional to following Jesus. This is a part of following Jesus and we need it deeply in our lives. We could provide the context as a church, but it's actually up to you to decide what type of community do you wanna be a part of? Like what type of community do you want this church to be? What type of community life do you want? A lot of it's actually up to you. And we hope that as a church, we could together by the power of the spirit, encourage each other, share life together. Be the church, be Jesus' followers the way he calls us to follow him. So let me just close this with a word of prayer and then we'll participate in the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray.